Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I'm your host, Ben Popper, worst coder in the world, director of content at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my colleague and collaborator, Ryan, Thor Donovan, editor of our blog, champion of our newsletter. That's me. CMU graduate and 20-year anniversary attendee. Ryan, how was your time with uh, all the old fogies from CMU? It was good. We had uh, the the even older crowds there. There was the, right. the 50th, so it's good to see what everybody's doing and everybody's in software. And when you go to a reunion, right, there's like the people who just graduated are there and they want to party. And then there's the 10 year, the 20 year, and then they're 40 and 50 and you're like, whoa, but you know, they were at their 20 year reunion once. That's right. Back in the day. Well, were there any particular topics of conversation that dominated or was it just the usual AI hype cycle? It was just the usual. Honestly, a lot of people didn't, didn't actually talk about AI. They were just like, meh. Yeah. They were like, hey, you got any kids? Right. Yeah, (laughs) that's nice. All right. Well, today we are going to talk about technology. We are going to be chatting with Mauricio Linares, who is a senior software engineer at Stripe. And he has worked at Stripe as well as DigitalOcean. We're going to be chatting about things like monoliths and microservices, what it means to work in the cloud, quote unquote, how you do migrations from a monolith to microservice and a bunch of other sort of interesting thing that he's done throughout his career. So Mauricio, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Having been a user for many, 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 many years and having <laughs> answered many questions and asked many questions as well, it's like great to be here talking to you folks. That's awesome. If you're brave enough to share your username, we'll add it to the show notes. Oh, yeah. Like, just look for <laughs> Mauricio Linhares. Like, it was a lot of Ruby and Java, so... Now I'm mostly doing Golang and that kind of stuff. So it's like always moving, always switching. So Mauricio, for folks who are listening, one of the reasons you're on the podcast is because you work with a colleague of ours, Roberta Arcoverde, who's been at Stack for a very long time and helped us through a lot of big technology building, architecting, and evolution. Tell the folks a little bit about who you are, what you do, uh, and yeah, sort of you know how you got into the place you are as a senior software engineer at a very well-respected tech company. It was kind of a wild chase, I guess. Like I left <laughs> college, started to work for a local company back in Juan Pessoa. Like my, my hometown is just a couple miles away from, from Roberta's hometown. We're from the same region in the country. We kind of almost have the same accent, but the people from our hometown have a slightly different accent that, that makes them sound <laughs> a little bit different from us. But we, we were kind of like from the same place, as you would say. And I worked for a year at a local company and it was right at the time where Ruby on Rails was eating everything. Everyone was talking about Ruby. Everyone was doing Rails. This this was like 2005, 2006. And it was the talk of the town. And I was doing Java back then and people were saying, hey, like this thing that that is taking like you a week for doing in Java, you could do it in five minutes in Rails. And like my eyes just started glittering. And I was like, well, I should have a look at this different language and started like playing with Ruby, did a little bit of Rails. And it was around the time where there was a lot of people hiring people remotely from all over the place. And I landed a job at a consultancy in South Africa. And it was me and three other guys doing this work. We were mostly doing consultancy for other companies that were that needed like Ruby on Rails experience or so needed 
apps to be built, like the kind of the beginning of the software as a service kind of thing. So we built a lot of that kind of stuff. We built social networks. It was like a, a lot of different things. And since that time, I haven't really ever worked for a company in Brazil anymore. And eventually, um, <laughs> like just switching jobs and working with Rails and other stuff, I eventually moved to the US eight years ago and started to work at a, a local company in Philly and had an amazing time in there. Moved to DigitalOcean, um, still living in Philly, like working remotely, but I would visit like our office in New York like almost every week. And eventually, before the apocalypse happened, we decided to have a kid. My wife got pregnant. And we were like, hey, we need to move elsewhere. We need a bigger place. We can't just be inside the city anymore. And we moved to Florida. And now I'm, I'm a neighbor to Mickey. Like, he's just like 10 minutes away from our place. And we have our little one in here. And last year, I switched jobs and came to Stripe. Like, I was looking for a different challenge. I worked a lot in, in platforms and, like, building services, like, internal services for the business. Like, most of the time that I was working at DigitalOcean, it was at the team that was helping people migrate from the monolith to microservices. So there was a lot of infrastructure. Like, most of my work was infrastructure. And I was like, well, maybe I should do something that is not, like, infrastructure anymore, work on stuff that's mm -hmm. customer-facing and that kind of stuff. And Stripe seemed like a really good opportunity to do that kind of work like work more on teams that are building features to customers instead of like an internal team that's building infrastructure and and platform so that's how i ended up like working on car, pay, car payments in here <laughs> interesting so uh you've you've done a lot of work you're a, sort of an expert on on the migration from monolith to microservices and you know that's Obviously not a super new thing, but it is for some companies still are migrating from their monoliths. What would you say are the, the most important things for people to keep in mind when they're making that migration? I think one, one of the most important things that, that people should keep in mind is that both the systems need to continue working, right? So that was one of the things that was number one for us back at DigitalOcean was that as we were building new systems and, and building new functionality, allowing people to migrate out of the services, the old and the new services had to work together. So it, it couldn't be a thing where you're just going to say, we're just going to flip and switch everything from one place to the other because that would just not be feasible. Like the amount of traffic <laughs> and all the work that had to go into making all of this work, it, it couldn't just be a big bang switch where everything's changes and now all the traffic lives in the new place we had to make sure that the migration path was a migration path that was slowly moving traffic and features into the new system and also there's a lot of stuff that I, I think like people don't pay attention to to the amount of work that has already been invested in that monolith so you're going to have metrics you're going to have alerting you're going to have logging you're going to have a lot of infrastructure that exists around that solution already that might not be visible because you're just so used. Like you don't even see that all of those pieces exist inside the system. And when you start to migrate that out to a new microservice that exists in its own place, like its own code base, its own like special way of building, you're not going to have access to all of those things that are already built for the monolith unless someone is building that for you. And that, that was one of the things that we had in mind back at DigitalOcean that we really wanted to do. We had to build all of this 
like the capabilities that existed in the monolith so that people migrating into these microservices wouldn't have to build it themselves. Because if you imagine like 20 teams all building their own microservices or building their own thing, they would end up with 20 different solutions for every single one of these things. Like they would have their own logging, they would have their own metrics, all, all, all different ways of doing this stuff. And that was like one of the number one goals that we had that we just did not want people to go that direction. Just reinvent the wheel every single time they were building a new service. And I think this is something that people miss when they are doing this kind of migration that there's all of this stuff, all this history that is built and maybe not visible anymore. And it starts to be really visible when you migrate there. There's a lot of growing pains that you get as you're moving into microservices. Yeah, that's interesting. We were on a call or a podcast recently with uh, the CEO of Retool. And I think his pitch was similar, you know, like instead of building internal tools you know, at every company reinventing the wheel, or as you make a good point, you know, even different departments building it, you know, get a SaaS provider and people can pick off the shelf stuff and it's up to retool to, you know, keep them up to date and do all that kind of stuff. You know, another podcast we were on and they were talking about like creating not sort of like a developer portal, but basically like, you know, a design and developer language that was universal throughout the company. So if somebody built you know, a developer tool internally, there was sort of a, a guidebook that was like, this is how you can build it so that we can make sure, you know, it integrates more. Like a developer platform or something. Yeah. I don't remember if it was, I don't think it was the backstage one, but. I mean, a lot of the the sort of internal developer tooling for services ends up being like service meshes and, you know, API gateways and, and the sort of things that handle the traffic shaping and manage failovers and such. So how did uh, you all at DigitalOcean solve that? Did you create the, you know, the kind of ligaments that tied everything together or was it something We had to. We had to. That is one of the downsides of actually being the cloud provider. You can't hire uh, cloud providers to do that work for you. (laughs) We we couldn't have a third-party, like, system or application set um, in between, like, the user doing the operations. So we just had to do a lot of the work ourselves so rolling out all of the systems and that was we had to do feature flagging we had to do the actual api gateway back when we started envoy and all the service mesh things that we have in place right now were not things so we just had to develop a solution that would work for the environment that we were in and it was an environment where a lot of stuff was changing that that was the beginning of everyone using kubernetes so there was a lot of learning or on how we would be running kubernetes in an environment like that and that that surfaced a lot of stuff that we did not understand about the network and how routing traffic into the Kubernetes cluster was going to to work and mixing like we have so we have the virtual machines can we use the virtual machines or if we use the virtual machines that we create ourselves what if the virtual machines break is that going to break our control panel so there's even the consideration of how are you going to build the systems in tiers so that as a tier that's on top of you breaks, that doesn't break you. And that was another challenge that we we had to have because as you are building the cloud, depending on where you are, you can't just dock food, right? Because those systems are being built on top of the primitives that you're providing. So your primitives cannot depend on these services. So we could not build a system that creates the virtual machines on top of virtual machines that had to be built on <laughs> something else, lower level, so that breaking the virtual machines doesn't break this internal system. And, and that that was one of the challenges of 
as like it was a business that was already running, there was a lot of stuff going on. And how do we make sure that these tiers are actually in the right place? How do you define like we, we used to call those like the zero tier systems? It, it was it would be the systems that would have to run independent of everything else. They just had they can only depend on themselves and they have to do all the work themselves. So building like this kind of stuff when everyone is talking about, oh yeah, we have like cloud formations, we have auto scaling groups and we have like managed Kubernetes. And and then inside we look, oh yeah, we just have to run everything manually or like in an automated <laughs> fashion, but not using cloud solutions because the systems are so low level that they can fail. They, they would only be able to fail by themselves. Like they could not use the other solutions that we had and building virtual machines and using managed Kubernetes because it would just make it impossible. Like you just have a cycle, right? So one breaks and then everything breaks. So that, that was one of the, the biggest challenges that we had. We just had to roll all of this ourselves. I mean, that's interesting. I think when everybody talks about cloud, they sort of forget that there's actual silicon and metal underneath yeah. it. Did you, uh, did you run your stuff on an operating system or was it something even lower than that? It, it was mostly operating system. So it was a mix of operating system and, and Kubernetes. So depended on what kind of system we were using. For, so most of the stuff that was compute heavy, like the API gateways that did not actually have to hold any data, like they would just ship data elsewhere. They could all run in Kubernetes, but we had a lot of services like Kafka databases that all had to run directly on hardware that was not virtualized. So those were actual machines that we had to kind of operate by ourselves, like using Ansible, Chef, and that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of manual operation to make the cloud work, as contrary to what most people expect. Like, there, there is a level where you can't, like, get that much automation <laughs> out of it. <laughs> I was watching a talk the other day from a famous MIT professor, and it was about why they had changed their course, you know, to move SIGP over to Python. And he was saying, you know, when we designed this, people had to get down at a low level and understand the metal and the memory and how the compiler worked and all that kind of stuff. Now, when I talk to students, you know, they're just take a bunch of libraries and packages and poke and prod and see if they can get, you know, out what they, you know, what they want. So it's interesting to hear you say, right, like you may want to have this incredibly lean, nimble, agile, serverless, headless uh, microservices company, but somebody at the end of the day has to be responsible for some of the bedrock. Otherwise, you know, one piece breaking would kind of cause the whole thing to spin out of control. Yeah, it's just computers, right? At the end, there's going to be a large server that has lots of CPUs, lots of memory, lots of disks. And that, that, is, that is one of the things that I think most people don't pay attention to. But we just had to. We had to look at the disk. Like, how, how much disk do you need? What kind of RAID setup are you going to use so that you're not going to lose data? What are the failure modes? We, like, in a lot of cases, we actually had to look at placement, so you're going to get the server. You want to make sure that it, it is not like you have multiple, we have a database, right? This database is going to have failover to other databases. They cannot be plugged to the same wiring and they cannot be plugged to the same power supply. And you actually have to go there and make sure, yes, when we're going to plug these boxes, this you have to make sure that it's this box <laughs> has to sit on this switch, on this power supply, and the backup needs to be on another switch, on another power supply. Because you don't want like one switch causing your database to be gone, and then your failover doesn't work because it's unreachable as well. So even That's like amazing. the placement of the boxes is going to affect it. Right. Right. If, if you want to get even more strict, you can uh, put them in different buildings, right? 
just oh, trying against <laughs> Godzilla's. <laughs> and we had to do that. It, it has to be like different buildings and different regions all together. So we had to make sure, okay, so we have a bunch of stuff that, that sits in data centers in New York and New Jersey. We also have to have the backups in San Francisco or in Toronto. So that right. if one of these places fails completely, the stuff has to move to these other places. Like all the traffic and processing has to move to these other places. And most of the time we would have to have like hot, hot systems where both of them are working and operating, even if they are not taking all the traffic. But so that it's easy for you to flip a switch and say, hey, now we're going to send all of this traffic to this other completely different region because we have lost like a full data center or multiple data centers in a region. So there's a lot of work that has to be done at this level just because of how low level you are to make sure it works. When in a cloud provider, you just say, yeah, I'm just going to use different availability zones and that is going to work. And that, that's one of the things that whenever I see people saying, oh, it's so hard for you to deploy stuff right now. It was much easier. Like we would FTP to a box and deploy to the box and then it would just work. And I'm just like, no, you don't want to go back to the time of FTP. <laughs> I've been right. there. It's not fun. <laughs> yeah. Underneath uh, all that, you know, just log into this website and you'll have an app running in minutes. There are real people mucking around in real buildings, plugging and unplugging things. Stack Overflow has a famous story about when... Uh, Hurricane Sandy came to New York and people were walking up and down stairs, bailing out buckets of water so that, uh, you know, they could make sure Stack Overflow's servers didn't go on the fritz. <laughs> so tell us a little bit, I guess, about your recent decision. You said you wanted to move away from the back end and do things that were more consumer facing. Was that just you felt like an opportunity to grow, to stretch your, you know, and learn new things? Or what was it about the consumer you know, facing side of stuff that interested you? It, it was mostly because I felt like I've, I've been doing this work for such a long time. Like I, I came before joining DigitalOcean. I was coming from small startups where I would just be working all over the place. But I ended up always moving to the operations because there was always this pain of DevOps and how, how do we make all of this scale? How do we make like all of the systems like work together? And after years and years and years doing this kind of work and being like on the back office, I thought... Maybe this is a good time for me to go work on something where there's more user-facing visibility to the features. So it is a completely different experience because while in the past I used to be the person that people would reach out to to set up architecture and all that kind of stuff, now I'm on the other side. Now I'm asking. And I, I think like having the empathy to also notice the the difference in now I have to actually work with these other teams to make sure that the work that I need them to do is on schedule, right? So they have to build the infrastructure. We have to set up like a new environment or we're going to be start processing elsewhere. So you just have to go and work with all of these different infrastructure teams to make sure that all the things are going to be aligned for when we're going to do the launch and that kind of stuff. So I feel like I needed to get this perspective on the other side as, as being someone that was mostly working and getting the asks from other teams. Now I am the one asking people to, to do this kind of basic infrastructure work and finding out where, where the holes are. So we have all of these pieces on the platform that need improvement. And now I am the one also helping drive this direction where in the past, like I would be on the other side, just working on the platform, making all of these things run. So having this this kind of perspective of working on the other side where I'm building the features, building the applications for someone to run these applications that is definitely something that, that I would recommend. Like anyone that, that is working in operations to do it every once in a while, to get this perspective on the other side. Is there uh, an incident 
uh, where you were you were on the infra team that you gained more empathy for the the askers when you were now asking? Was there something that like you're like, oh, I get why they were asking that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that was a work that we. Perspective that you have as you're building infrastructure is very different from the perspective of the people that are using the infrastructure. And one of the things that really caught us, like underhanded, was we had to build new dashboards and we had to build ways for, especially for the operations team, to find out if there was something going on in the systems. Because as the API gateway back then, it was the first layer of all the traffic. So any traffic that was going through the public API, the control panel, the ocean had to flow through this API gateway. So we had visibility into all the metrics. And what we ended up doing was building a really complex dashboard with a lot of panels, a lot of metrics, not a lot of explanation, because we were like, we understand all of this. We don't need explanations for it. But then when an operations people would open that dashboard, they would be like, what are these numbers? What do they mean? Like, what is this about? How do I even figure out if there's something going on? Because it's like graphs all over the place and there's no Mm -hmm. definition on what is going on with the system. And at that point, we were like, hey, we made a huge mistake in here. Like, this dashboard is really useful for us as developers and the people that are running the platform, but not for the customers of the platform or for the operations teams that need to understand what's going on in here. So one of the first things that we, we did after that was starting to build separate dashboards for the separate demographics that we had. So one, we would build dashboards that were services specific for the people building new microservices that would sit behind the, the API gateway. So those would be high-level dashboards, only metrics for your system so that you could see how your system is behaving on that specific environment. And then we would build different dashboards for incident detection, like with multiple levels, right? So Instead of just saying, oh, we're going to build this dashboard that only looks at our system, we will look, what are the other systems that are related to us that could also be causing incidents? So we would be looking at the CDN provider that we have. We would be looking at the main databases that we have. We would be looking at the like, highest traffic systems that we had. And we ended up building a tiered dashboard where you would be looking like from the high level all the way to the low level to the main databases and all high-level perspectives, high-level metrics, like with colors to make sure that people would see. Like at the, we open the dashboard, right on top, a bunch of panels that would be green, yellow, or red showing like high-level metrics like and, and high visibility. So when you open it and you see, oh, the API gateway is showing yellow, we do have an issue here. The database is showing red, the issue is at the database. So that they would, wouldn't have to actually go through every single one of these panels and understand all these different pieces. And we also introduce like descriptions to the metrics. We started to add marks for deployments so if there was a deployment on that application that would be marked on the dashboard, oh, if something started to happen right after there's a deployment mark, it's very likely it was a deployment that caused it, right? So building this separate dashboards for the separate people that had to look at the data was one of the things that became really visible to us. Hey, like, we are not building something just for us. This has to be built for everyone, even People that are not direct customers, like the operations people, because like we would at the beginning, we saw like, oh, the, our direct customers are the teams that are migrating into microservices. And then we noticed, no, like our direct customers are many more people in the business that actually want to have a high level perspective of how systems are behaving. And this, this really led us to improve the way we were sharing data, the way we were exporting data, building dashboards, collecting metrics to make all of this more visible to everyone else. 
Yeah, we had a great guest on recently who's also written from the blog who talked about observability debt. And I think, you know, what you're talking about is building tools internally that start to take care of some of that stuff. Because as you point out, it can be hard to know where it started. And when you're extending things in different directions and piping things out to microservices, harder and harder for teams to understand why, you know, their particular service isn't working because something upstream or downstream, you know, has gone wrong. That was Jin Yang from Akita, right? Yep. Was observability debt is the new technical debt <laughs> <laughs> and that is true right there's so much data that we have to process that actually operating on all of it and making sense of it is a lot of work in itself yeah you no longer just have a you know a text file in a certain folder now it's just all these services everything is just throwing out data yeah and, and even like as you start to mix the variables we have you have like this small service that's not tracking taking traffic from india and it's just a trickle of traffic that's not working. But if you don't have tracking for these collections of variables, you will never notice that that is happening. There is just like that specific amount of traffic from that specific country for that specific application. All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. We want to shout out someone from Stack Overflow who came on and helped save a little knowledge from the dustbin of history. Awarded April 12th to The Nail. What is the efficiency of if return versus if else? If you're curious, the nail has an answer for you and has helped 25,000 people over the years with that little tidbit of knowledge. And of course, don't forget to check out Mauricio, who is in the top 0.61% overall. So Mauricio, we appreciate all the knowledge (laughs) you shared. Yeah, Ruby on Rails, Ruby Java, Ruby on Rails 3. Active Record and Scala are your top uh, areas of contribution, but we really appreciate it. <laughs> All right, everybody. As always, thanks for listening. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. Find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us with questions or suggestions, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like what you heard, why don't you leave us a rating and a review? It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. And if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at rthordonovan. And I'm Mauricio Linares, uh, Senior Software Engineer Stripe. And to find me, you can search for Mauricio JR on Twitter. And if you're in Brazil, or you can actually understand Portuguese, you can go and listen to our Portuguese podcast and technology. It's hipsters.tech. So go there. You're going to find me and Roberta there. Very cool. All right, everybody. As always, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>